Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Might hear a few curse words in this one. Just a warning. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 22nd, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Boston Celtics head coach Ime Udoka's suspension and how it's been covered by the NBA media. We'll also discuss Roger Federer's tear-filled retirement. And Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today will join us for a conversation about her reporting on the massive Mississippi welfare scandal that has Brett Favre at its center. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. The last episode of our season on 1986 is out this week, and it is a doozy, I must say. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, Wild and Outside, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey there, Stefan. You mixed up the order. Wow. Keeping me on my toes. Keeping you on your toes. Uh, you know, sometimes you got to do the one-step drop, sometimes the three-step, you know. Got to be prepared for all situations. And with us from Pacific Time, the host of Slow Burn Seasons 3 and 6, the host of the one-year episode, A Boycott in Mississippi, the co-host of Hang Up and Listen. What doesn't he host, oh. honestly? It's Joel Anderson. I'm professional host. He does bar mitzvahs. I wouldn't know Sweet yet. 16. <laughs> quinceaneras. I'm, you know, I'm actually really disappointed that I've never been to a quinceanera or a bar mitzvah. Um, it probably just shows to the... You know, how limited my childhood was. It was very, you know, and I had my group of friends, but I never got to do one. Maybe, maybe can somebody invite me to one at some point? One of our listeners, maybe. Um, you, know. you have a child now. In 13 or 15 or 16 years, you'll be there. Are parents allowed to go to, the parents of a child allowed to go to the bar mitzvahs? Or oh, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're definitely allowed to. But yes, generally, generally <laughs> the parents are. Parents are invited. You know, not always, but, not some, always, not, yeah. but sometimes. But if, but if you're friendly with the parents. I want to go to one of those ones they invite, like, Meek Mill, you know, to, <laughs> to, to, as, a, as a guest performer or something. So if, you, if, if you're into that, get me there. Get to work um, befriending the rich people of Philadelphia, and then, then that'll be a possibility for you. We've just kind of eased into the fact that all three of us are back together. What a glorious uh, moment for us and for the listeners. So nice. A summer of discontent followed by this fall. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited that we're all back. It's been a long time. We're all wearing glasses, too. Even Kevin, our producer. And we're all for four for four now. Um, it's new. Our great national nightmare is over. Yes, it is. Um, two things before we get started. One correction from last week. During our segment with Mark Spitz, he mentioned that he said it was never proved who committed the bombing at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Actually, Eric Rudolph was convicted of that bombing, so we wanted to correct that. Um, and also in our Slate Plus segment for this week, we are going to allow Joel to unleash all of the college football takes that he's been holding in for the last month. Well, he's been tweeting them, but um, <laughs> I can't wait to talk to 
Joel, about uh, Texas being back. That is uh, something I've been looking forward to all uh, all summer. They'll be even backer next fall when Archie's there. So I can't wait. I'm excited. Going into the SEC on a high note. If you want months worth of Joel Anderson college football takes, you need to be a Slate Plus member to join. Go to slate.com slash hangoutplus and you get uh, bonus segments, you get ad-free shows, you get to support us. Slate.com slash hangoutplus. Last Wednesday at around 10.30 p.m., ESPN's NBA reporter Adrian Wojnarowski wrote on Twitter, Boston Celtics coach Ime Udoka is facing possible disciplinary action, including a significant suspension for an unspecified violation of organizational guidelines. A little more than two hours later, Shams Charania of The Athletic tweeted that Udoka had an improper, intimate, and consensual relationship with a female member of the team staff. Later Thursday, the Celtics announced that Udoka would be suspended for the entire 2022-23 season. In a news conference on Friday, Celtics team owner Wick Grousebeck and President Brad Stevens said that an outside law firm had conducted a months-long investigation, but they offered no specifics about what Udoka had done. Tarania, however, reported that while the Celtics were told by both parties in the summer that their relationship was consensual, quote, the woman recently accused Udoka of making unwanted comments toward her, end quote, which led to the internal review. Joel, the late night timing of the initial tweets and subsequent information vacuum led to some predictably disgusting behavior online, people naming and sharing photos of women who work for the Celtics, and also some predictably bad takes, notably by ESPN's Stephen A. Smith. We'll get into some details, uh, but for starters, do you agree that both the media and the NBA handled this less than ideally? Yeah, it's tough because I spent the past few days trying to figure out how this could have been reported in a way that wouldn't have devolved into a TMZ-esque mess. And I'm struggling to come up with an answer because at the heart of the story, here's the head coach of one of the NBA's finalists, you know, himself a former player and a partner of a famous Hollywood actress. If he gets suspended at all, or if there's even reports that the Celtics are considering a suspension in just a few months after that finals appearance... There's no way to prevent that from getting out. And once you announce that, then how are you going to prevent people from digging into the prurient details or allegations uh, at play here, right? Um, I, If you told me just in a nutshell, hey, man, uh, head coach of the Boston Celtics who just was in the finals, I don't even know his name, don't need to know who his partner is. They're going to suspend him for possibly a year after that finals appearance for having an improper relationship. I mean, your mind is going to go in all sorts of directions, and it's really impossible for somebody to not get hurt or get caught up in that, you know, that news cycle that we're in. So in a lot of ways, I think the media is a convenient scapegoat for a really unflattering story about Udoka. And to me, he's the one to blame here, because even if it's not against Boston Celtics policy, even if these relationships were consensual, and I'm using air quotes there, to the extent that someone with that much influence in an organization can enter into a relationship with a subordinate consensually, it's not the sort of behavior you want from a man who is one of the faces of your franchise. And so, at least for me, Josh, uh, until we know more about what the Celtics knew and when, don't you think it's hard to blame anyone other than Udoka here? Or maybe, I, or maybe I'm not taking Stephen A's comment seriously enough because I didn't watch anything other than the, the most ridiculous parts of them. So you're right, Joel, that the person who deserves the most 
blame or is most responsible is Ime Udoka, but I think second place would be the Woj Shams tag team. Um, because the way that we all knew about this story is 10.35 p.m. Wednesday, Woj tweets that Udoka was facing possible disciplinary action. Discussions are ongoing within the Celtics. Then Shams, a couple hours later, said Celtics coach Ime Udoka had an improper, intimate, and consensual relationship. And it wasn't until a while later that Shams added the nugget about there being potential unwanted comments. From yeah, that was after Udoka. that was after the Celtics announced the suspension. So that was his story about the suspension being announced. So th- there are two issues there, Joel. Number one is Woj tweeting out um, this like vague thing that he was facing possible disciplinary action. And I guess we can talk about should he have not said anything until he knew or had confirmed what the possible suspension was, because then that just leads to kind of wild speculation. Then the Shams thing, he advanced the story like he was, you know, (laughs) Woj didn't have the fact that it involved an improper relationship. So I guess he won, Shams won that round. Um, But again, it framed the conversation that, um, you know, why why is this guy being suspended for a consensual relationship? Why are we talking about this instead of X, Y, and Z. And so it's not in these guys' constitutions to, like, not tweet. <laughs> but, you know, if if you were the editor, Joel, or if you had something like this, what do you think you would do? Or, or what would you want to have? Because this, you're right that this was going to come out, and the idea, like, that we shouldn't know what happened, that's just, like, imagining a world that doesn't exist. Like, we were going to know something at some point eventually. Right. It's just really tough because what do you, we know that Woj has a tremendous amount of pull in ESPN's NBA division down to determining the people that work on the TV shows, the people that cover the teams. And when you've already given somebody that much rope, um, you know, you give them enough to sort of hang themselves. And so I, 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 I mean, you would like to live in a news media environment where you don't report any, you don't report those sorts of comments like or, or or put in a loaded term like consensual until you've got all the facts in, but that's just not what it is. Um that's not what the consensual is such a subjective and yeah. loaded word. Right. And how much do you think consensual has informed the interest in the women involved in this story? Because I actually don't think like I do think that it is informed a lot of the resistance from some of the more, you know, caveman types that are like, why Why is this guy getting in trouble for having a consensual relationship with a woman? Like, I think that's separate and apart from the idea that there are women on the staff of the Boston Celtics whose names and mugshots have been floating out on the internet for the last few days. And, um, you know, being mentioned as possible partners with Udoka, I, I don't, I don't think consensual really has informed that part of it, which is sort of the most odious piece of this, right? That all these other people are getting caught up in this really salacious news story and we don't know how, we don't know how their connection and a lot of it is wrong. But I don't even know if I really blame Woj Shams for that. Like, I mean, again, they're doing what they've been told to do. And Woj knows that if he doesn't report something, Shams is going to do it. And that's the only scoreboard by which they're judged by and uh, in, in this news media environment. So I just Yeah, don't... but that doesn't mean that there aren't editors that could either help frame those tweets 
in a more cautious way that would you know not create the shitstorm that it created. Man. Do and you think Woj's first tweet was very cautious? It was very cautious. You know, large probably because he didn't have the extra details. Do you think they are editors for tweets? It would actually surprise me if nobody looked at that before it went up. It would it would surprise me. Okay, I don't think really? for every tweet, but I think right. for that one. I, I would hope that someone looked at it, but there have been examples in the past where other reporters have apparently seemed to, you know, just tweet sensitive stories like that, which we can get into. But back to your question, Joel. I mean, the the use of that word, consensual, gave, I think, some um, leeway for the takers, right? This is how the, the you know, the sort of defending Udoka um, sort of... Uh, takes emerged in the next few hours, the next morning. Um, and what's missing in that is that the issue of consent in a workplace situation where there is this power dynamic at play is different. Um, and it is nuanced. And it is, and there are rules in clearly in the Celtics organization about what's allowed and what isn't. Um, and that, again, back to that vacuum without understanding what exactly the team's guidelines were, what exactly happened in the situation, because we didn't know, and we still really don't know, nor should we necessarily know. It's going to get filled by the kind of speculation that we saw. You alluded to this earlier, Joel, but there was already interest in Udoka's relationship, given that he's been engaged to Nia Long for a long time and they have a kid together. He's also, you know, he was somebody who kind of came on the scene very quickly. Like this was the past year was his first year. He's like a young uh, coach. He led the team to great things. There was, there were a lot of profiles of him. He was somebody, he coaches one of the two kind of um, showcase franchises in the NBA. Then you have this kind of vague allegation. And then, um, you know, the, the note that it's about a relationship. And I think, it was just a, a perfect kind of combination of factors to lead to speculation, to lead to uh, <laughs> takes and memes about Nia Long, um, all all sorts of things. And like, I, I think we can get in trouble by comparing it to other situations. And it's always like, well, he was suspended for this for this for doing that and he was sus only suspended for that um so you know what, what's what is wrong with with people and humanity it's just like i'm not sure we're going to get anywhere there but you know i remember and you remember joel the whole bobby petrino fiasco at arkansas where he lost his job because of having an affair with an assistant the whole thing being exposed because he was in a motorcycle crash which led to him having a press conference while wearing a like ridiculous <laughs> neck brace. Um, there was the scenario where Pat Summit's son, Tyler Summit, was mm -hmm. the head coach of Louisiana Tech women's basketball and resigned because he was having an affair with a player on the team. And obviously there are lots of power dynamics and that's a whole an entirely different scenario. But I, the, the point being that like, I I feel like people were going a little too far and saying this is totally unprecedented, like somebody being suspended for something like this. It's like, no, it's not totally unprecedented. Like things like this have happened before. And also we don't know, it's not like a professional or even a lot of college teams are responsive to the public in that way. They're probably, there could be suspensions or discipline enacted behind the scenes that we have no idea about all the time, right? 
Um, and I, you know, don't don't you all judge? Ime Udoka is lucky he doesn't work for a public university, so his texts are, are not FOIA. Oh <laughs> man, I mean him and uh, your boy, uh, who is it? Uh, it, it Liberty, not uh, <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Freeze. Freeze. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like you never know when there's a Houston nut out there on the case, um, and not a Houston nut, not me, but Houston nut, the former uh, college football <laughs> coach. Uh, I hope you all understand, uh, but. You know, it, don't judge me, but I watched a lot of uh, Undisputed on FS1, the show with Skip Bayless and, and, and Shannon Sharp. <laughs> and Skip talked quite a bit about how this was more common than we might have imagined back in the day about the idea that there are these sort of relationships that go on um, on these sports teams that, you know, Eric, I mean, he's he didn't mention these by name, but, you know, Eric Spolstra, the head coach of the Miami Heat, is married to a former Heat dancer. Um Phil Jackson dated Jeannie Buss. Uh, you know, I, well, can I, should I say <laughs> allegations about Barry Switzer everywhere he's ever worked in people's wives? You know what I mean? Like there's, there's stuff like that that has always been out there. Um, and so I, I, I think people are looking at those instances and saying, well, why is Udoka getting in trouble? But the problem is that for so long, men in these positions have just run roughshod over the women in their organizations. And so there was never a question of whether or not it was consensual or not, because those women often, they didn't, we didn't talk about consent like that 20, 30 years ago, like as a mainstream conversation. And so I think that um, people are finally waking up to the idea that, you know what, people in these positions will abuse them. And Udoka is you know, for, depending on which side of you come from, fortunately or unfortunately, the guy that's going to pay the price for that. And right, and and as you said, Josh, credit to the Celtics for a acting on what the media really hasn't acted on, which is the two, the two key words were in Shams's follow-ups, the unwanted comments mm-hmm. by Udoka toward this woman. Um, we don't know what the the you know what the the order of operations was in terms of determining what his punishment was going to be, but if that is accurate, that's really important. And Woj and ESPN kind of ignored that um, aspect of it, which allowed the two days of screaming by people like Stephen A. Smith about how this is unfair and that I'm mad at the Celtics and they did the wrong thing here. I mean, Stephen A. Smith even said. Should we go out on some Stephen A. here? Should we sure. play a clip? I mean, Stephen A., I, we don't have a clip of this one, but Stephen A. Smith on that Friday said it was a consensual relationship that violated organizational policy, so only he is in violation of company policy? The woman who elected to have a consensual relationship with him is not in violation? To which Malika Andrews, who was on the set with him, said, stop. And then Smith yelled at her. Well, I, I think Stefan Stephen A. impression will suffice. So that that is our that is our clip of Stephen A. Smith <laughs> for, for, the, for the show. Uh, uh, yeah, you should you should you really could have done a little more of the. Yeah, I didn't even try. Of, I thought we were going to uh, roll into the clip. I didn't want to step no, that's on the it. real thing. We're done. We're done. Coming up next, Roger Federer's tearful farewell.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Friday at the O2 Arena in London, the American duo of Francis Tiafoe and Jack Sock won a doubles match at the Labor Cup. It was perhaps the most irrelevant victory in tennis history, given that everyone in the crowd and around the world had tuned in to see Rafael Nadal pair up with Roger Federer in Federer's final professional match. The 41-year-old 20-time Grand Slam champion had not intended to go out this way in a glorified exhibition event, but his right knee never fully recovered after multiple surgeries that had kept him out since he lost in the 2021 Wimbledon quarterfinals. Here he is in conversation with Jim Courier on court when the match and his career were over. It's been incredible to watch this journey that you've been on. It started as a boy playing tennis. You turned into a junior champion, then a world champion, and then you became a sporting icon. What has that journey been like for you? It was never supposed to be that way. Um, It's just uh, happy to play tennis and uh, spend time with my friends, really. And uh, it ended here, so it's been a a perfect journey. I would do it all over again. It was actually hard to find a clip from that speech where Federer didn't pause for a long stretch because he was crying or about to cry. It was extremely sweet. Um, But for me, the most tear-jerking moments came from Nadal, Federer's great friend and rival. They were on their team bench holding hands at one point with tears in both of their eyes. Then there was this, which Nadal said while Federer was sitting beside him. When um, Roger leaves, uh, I I am losing uh, an important part of my life. You know, well, important part of my life, it's it's living with him. Stefan, damn. Damn. What did you make of all that? I mean, weeping with his rival. I mean, it reinforced every feeling I've ever had about Roger Federer and why maybe more than other goats, he was a magnet for admiration and respect. Um, Above everything else, his on-court grace and fluidity, his astounding stretch of dominance in the mid to late 2000s, his resilience for the next decade, his epic battles, especially with Nadal, his slam titles, his elegance, his tailor-perfect and tastefully unlogoed tennis outfits, his hair, At its peak, his hair was perfect. Above all of that, what sealed the deal for me about Federer is that he seemed like a decent human being, which is incredible because he was in some ways the least relatable sports superstar. Swiss, fluent in four languages, able to answer questions in four more, representing Rolex, Mercedes, Credit Suisse, Moet Champagne, NetJets. He was on paper a caricature of European wealth and sophistication, but he wasn't a sportocrat at all. He projected humility and generosity, graciousness toward opponents and family and his team and fans. He didn't seem intimidating on or off the court. 
And that made him likable and endearing and also weirdly relatable, I think. Louisa Thomas said it better than I can in The New Yorker the other day. Fetter, who had once appeared to represent a kind of luxury that is well out of the reach of most of us, came to symbolize something more approachable, a kind of sunny decency. He treated people well in public and behind the scenes. He'd faced disappointment and cried and got on with it. Yeah, and, it, you know, I think, first off, you know, Louisa hits on this in that same piece that it it feels like Roger Federer has been at an advanced age for a tennis player and on the verge of retirement for more than a decade. Um, and that him and Serena and Rafa and others have sort of helped us to reconsider what might be the timeline for a champion athlete. Um, and so I just I kind of can't believe that the day has already arrived because in some ways... It was easy to believe that he was immune to the aging process. But um, I, to, to your, your point, Stefan, I want to... Um, Christopher Clary, who's Roger Federer's biographer, wrote an essay in the New York Times, and he mentioned something that's obvious but doesn't quite seem obvious enough, I think. Um, he says, quote, "...he conducted himself on and off the court with class. That was in part because he realized, as he rose in prominence, that he did not want to project a temperamental image to his public, but also because he realized he played better under tight control, that the release provided by bemoaning the injustice of it all was seriously outweighed by the precision and focus acquired by mastering his emotions. Um, and to me, what I think of when I think of Roger Federer is that he's an excellent rejoinder to those who believe the only way to show athletic excellence or competitive fire is by being a fire-breathing asshole. And I wonder why people don't take more note of all the different ways you can comport yourself in public as a champion. You know, as if the only way to project winner guy is by being Kobe or Michael Jordan, right? Um, and Roger Federer did that. And, I, you know, some people could call it a performance. Some people could say, hey, I, you don't know that guy. You don't know anything about what his life is like behind the scenes. But in light of where we are in, uh, culturally in this country and in the world right now, I really don't have a problem with somebody choosing to project decency as their public persona. Yeah, that's all really well said. Um, there are lots of different ways that Federer has been um, a model for tennis fans, for his fellow competitors, for even non-sports fans. David Epstein wrote um, in his book Range about the Tiger Woods kind of a approach that was really popular during Tiger's rise, this idea that you need to get your kid into, you know, monomaniacal kind of focus from the age of three and have them appear on the Mike Douglas show from the age of three. <laughs> Unfortunately, Mike Douglas show does no, no longer exist. So that pathway is not available for today's children, but um, that actually Federer is the better model, somebody who played all sorts of different sports Growing up, he was a he was a really good soccer player. Only focused on tennis uh, later, and so yeah, Dave writes really well about the the Tiger versus Roger kind of di dichotomy there. But I think one thing that has been a little bit forgotten in these remembrances is that and I'm, Federer has talked about being kind of a hothead when he was when he was younger, and that's a part of the kind of origin story. That at a certain point, as you said, Joel, and as Christopher Clary said that he got that under control. That's That part, I think, is pretty well remembered. There, but there was this period during um, his peak dominance in the mid um, to late-ish 2000s where he was perceived as being arrogant, 
um, but not in a way that that was. He wasn't an asshole, but he would just give these speeches after he won tournament after tournament, where he'd just be like, "Yeah, I was just like unbelievable out there today," and people would laugh. People would laugh, and you're like, "It's true," and he's just like saying a thing that's true, but he wasn't somebody who was considered humble at that point. Like certainly. If you if we were having this conversation in 2007, nobody would say Roger Federer, what a humble star. He would just beat, kick everyone's ass, and then just kind of shrug and be like, "Yeah, I'm really, really great. Like I am the great. I'm. It's unbelievable. I can't even believe it." And and so that was kind of how he was known. And then this moment happened um, that it, it wasn't the match that he lost to Nadal at Wimbledon in 2008, um, where he that was kind of the first moment. Where this guy who, you know, he, sure he had lost to Nadal on clay, but not on any of his preferred surfaces. He was the king of grass. And then Nadal beats him in what some have said is the greatest match of all time. And that really took him down a peg. But the the real moment was the 2009 Australian Open, where um, Nadal beat him in that tournament after having beaten him at Wimbledon. And Federer could not deal with it. He cried in the ceremony to such an extent that he had to stop and the like tournament organizer had to come on and say we need to give Roger a few minutes he said kind of famously at least to me god this is killing me and just just broke down and had to um step back and Nadal who at that point was like you know the kind of youthful fl- hair flowing Nadal and just like coming on the scene like a, a house of fire in that moment put his arm around Federer kind of said something in his ear, hugged him, and then Federer came back and finished and said, I don't deserve the last word this guy does. And that, to me, was the beginning of this relationship, Stefan. And maybe it wasn't the beginning of it privately, but publicly, that was the beginning. And it was really credit to Nadal there for like being the person that he is in that moment um, that created this sort of, I think, what will be one of the most enduring relationships and the history of sports. Yeah, I think we'll be saying a lot of the same things about Nadal when he's done. I mean, he has comported himself in a similar way, though he doesn't project that air of, you know, European elitism that can come off of Federer, that sort of perfection in appearance and humor. Um, But the two of them together, I mean, have we had in history a kind of, you know, rivalry where the players are defined by each other. And, you know, and I think you have to also throw in Djokovic and to a lesser extent Murray when it comes to Federer and rivals. But... Well, Borg and McEnroe, right? Rivals. I mean, you were... That, that was something that you were more present for than, than we were, Stefan. What's that? Borg and McEnroe. Yeah. I mean, they were completely defined by each other. Um, but... The difference is that McEnroe was an asshole. Um, and where you saw those moments of shared emotion, you never felt like, wow, these are two people who not only respect each other for how they play the sport, but they genuinely get along and love each other and can relate to each other for being as, you know, about being as great as they are. And I think the that that shared spotlight, equally equally brilliant rivals with comparable skills and gifts, 
but having each other to play off of, I think it enhances the character of both of these people. You know, we talked about the 20, you talk about the 20 slams and, and both Nadal and Djokovic have eclipsed that now. Um, Federer also lost in 11 Grand Slam finals, um, plus 15 more semifinals. <laughs> 46 Grand Slam semifinals for Federer, 43 for Djokovic, Nadal for Nadal 38. That's insane. And you take out Nadal or Djokovic, and the numbers could have been staggering for Federer, and you can say the same for the other two guys as well. Yeah. It, it's interesting because you you talked about, you know, is there another rivalry of this sort? Um, um, and I don't know if you were, you guys intentionally limited it to tennis or not, but um, even if you expanded outside of tennis... Like, it can't be Ali Frazier because there's none of that, obviously, because none of the personal animus that was actually there. Mm -hmm. It can't be Magic Bird because even though they liked each other and were friendly, they were in a public rivalry that made them represent more than themselves. And they ended up being marketing partners more than friends. Right, exactly. Like, you, for, for instance, I don't see Larry Bird on the annual Magic Johnson yacht tour of the Mediterranean, right? So that to me, that kind of, you know, t- lets me know. Um, what that friendship is really about. But, you know, Brady Manning, not really that warm. So, yeah, I mean, this is a really unique rivalry. I mean, or or Wilt and Russell, right? They didn't talk to each other, uh, talk about each other in those terms. And I I haven't seen any video where they did anything like what um, Federer and Nadal did in that final press conference. So it it actually makes me lead into this. And you, you all are much bigger tennis fans than I am, but... I'm just fascinated by the idea that tennis fans don't get distracted by goat debates. You know what I mean? They're like, if, oh, they do. They do. <laughs> do they really? Okay, maybe I'm not in that. Maybe I'm not on those uh, message boards or whatever. But I just kind of feel like you know you don't see the sort of oh no, it's really Nadal. No, it's Djokovic. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it's like well, it could kind of be all three of them if if you really think about it. I think the reason that it feels a little bit more civil and less distracting these days with the the tennis goat stuff is that Federer has just clearly been surpassed. And so there is an aesthetic argument for Federer and there's an argument and, and Nadal and Djokovic say this, all of the other players say this, they'll say like, he's the greatest player ever. He's an icon or he changed the sport. But, and I think the fact that his numbers have been surpassed is sort of like liberating where you can celebrate him as the icon that he is without getting caught up in the like, well, he has 20, he has 19, he has a, like, because there was a moment, there, there, it's been longer than a moment. There's a decade where there, there was this kind of hope, I think, that he would like cling on to those records, that his aesthetic brilliance would be, you know, that you could make a statistical argument that it was, that he was, that he was the greatest. But I think once that's, gone and now that you you know this this last weekend and this I'll I'll kind of circle back around to finishing up this thought but it seemed really fitting and appropriate that Serena's career ended the way that hers did and Federer's ended the way that his did Serena um maybe the greatest competitor in the history of the sport deserved that ending that was her fighting um in Ash Stadium in an actual Grand Slam where she kept saving those match points and just would not give up until the very end. And she got all the acclaim and everything that Federer had, but she did it in that competitive environment. For Federer, it seemed fitting that it was in 
a kind of event of his own making. A controlled environment. Not, I don't. I mean, there was a match. I, I, it, but, it's, yeah. it certainly would have been, it would have been fitting if it was at Wimbledon too. But this was an event that he created that's kind of helped grow the game in a certain way. But more than that, it was just an event where people came to watch him because they wanted to see him play. They didn't care what the outcome was. It didn't matter ultimately what the outcome was. It was just a celebration. It was like going to see, um, you know, Elton John or something like that. Like you wanted to see the artist perform. Um, And so I, I think once everyone was in agreement that like, this guy did amazing things and he kind of transcends numbers, then like it, it became Joel like less fraught than like Jordan and, and, uh, and LeBron. It's like not a, it's not a rings with a Z thing. Right. And I think it's, it's just, it's not relevant in as, as much as it might be in a Jordan LeBron argument because Federer going back to his decency is like it feels unseemly to sort of argue about how good Roger Federer was and whether Djokovic is this much better or Nadal was that much better because they won one or two or however many grand slams it's going to end up being more than Roger did. Um, It just feels wrong because Roger was such a good person in addition to being the most aesthetic, beautiful, successful, competitive, quietly um, player of his generation. We're going to see, I think, in this upcoming Netflix documentary that I'm sure we'll talk about, about the Redeem team at the Olympics, um, the sort of relationship that Kobe Bryant had with all these players. And I think, especially because of Kobe's death, they all talk about having a sort of relationship and or friendship with him that transcended rivalry. But Kobe was also a huge asshole. Like that was like, yeah. and what this, this clip that went around it, um, like a preview of this documentary, it's all about how he like softened up Pau Gasol and then just like brutally fouled him on the first <laughs> play of the game to like show who was alpha. And then there's, you know, everything else about um, Kobe Bryant and the kind of sexual assault allegations that, that make him just a more complicated figure than uh than Federer or, or Nadal but it's you know Joel maybe we can end here like it seems like we should be able to make not just in tennis cross-sport comparisons but like in any sort of profession there's something about Federer and Nadal that's like the one person on the entire planet who understands what you've gone through what your life is and it seemed you know and and they've talked about they talk off the court they you know they've they've shared this thing on the court so you would it 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 makes a certain kind of sense but i think even given that what's more common is like what federer i mean jason gay talked to federer over the weekend for a journal wall street journal piece his relationship with Djokovic, which is like we have a good time when we're together and we never talk when we're not um around each other that actually seems more common and so the federer nadal thing seems like oh yeah like we should be able to find that everywhere, and but we but we don't. <laughs> right. right, yeah, and, and and to put a pin on that, like you say, um, I've been reading a lot about him the last couple of days, and I'm just so impressed. And you hope that people that are sports fans or want their kids to get involved in sports, you know, that there are a lot of athletes that you can take things from. And I would like to hear Roger Federer's name and use a little bit more, and I'll just say this, because this is, I was an athlete, and I wish that somebody had, 
hit this, you know, bang this into my head as a kid. But he said, I'm happy I don't have flashbacks at tough moments in my career. I see more of the happiness, me with the trophy, me winning, me winning moments. And I'm happy that my brain allows me to think this way um, because I know it's not easy to push sometimes defeats and those things away. And that is a really tough thing to do when you're getting into sports at any level, you know, to not obsess on the failure or the potential for embarrassment, to remember that, oh, man, this is actually really, really fun. Um, and I'm out there doing it with my friends. And um, You should think more about being the fastest 10-year-old and not the not fastest 11-year-old. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it is also fun to win, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today on the Mississippi welfare scandal and Brett Favre. Threats to our nation waiting around every corner. Adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. On the afternoon of August 3rd, 2017, Pro Football Hall of Famer Brett Favre sent a text message to a Mississippi nonprofit founder who annually received millions in state welfare funds. Favre wanted in on some of that money and had been working with the founder to take $1.1 million that would then go to a new volleyball stadium at his alma mater, the University of Southern Mississippi. But Favre wanted to know something important about that arrangement. Here's that text message. If you were to pay me... Is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? Turns out, the answer is yes. Uh, in, in the past couple of weeks, there have been more and more revelations about Favre, that volleyball stadium, and the people instrumental in diverting more than $5 million in Mississippi welfare money to the former NFL QB. Anna Wolf has uncovered this story for Mississippi Today, and she is here with us today. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Yeah, thanks so much. So you've been breaking news all morning, and we can talk about that um, at the, in, a, in a few minutes. But let, let's start from the beginning here. How did you learn of Favre's alleged involvement with this scam? Sure. So back in 2020, the auditor's office arrested six people um, in connection with this scheme to misspend um, tens of millions of dollars. But uh, just in those indictments, it, the allegation was theft of about $4 million, $2 million of which went to a company that was developing a, a cure for concussions, a pharmaceutical startup company. And I was pretty quickly able to tie that company back to Brett Favre because Brett Favre had been sponsoring this company and had been going to Mississippi officials trying to get them to um, provide support for the development of this drug. Um, and that pretty quickly led me to the discovery that he had also been involved in a building a volleyball stadium at University of Southern Mississippi, as you said, which also received welfare money in the amount of $5 million. Um, so these stories broke back in 2020, but it wasn't until more recently that we learned about the former 
uh, governor's involvement and particularly the relationship and communication that the governor had with Brett Favre about making these deals happen, right? Um, and those text messages that you read were just released in a court filing here a couple weeks ago. I am old enough to remember that the Brett Favre Mississippi welfare scandal was that he had paid, been paid a million dollars to like give speeches that he never actually gave. What is the connection of that to this most these most recent revelations? Yeah, so it's interesting. The attorney uh, for Nancy New, uh, who was the nonprofit founder that you mentioned, is um, attempting to um, bring the volleyball stadium into the fold of this civil suit that is ongoing. Right now, there's a civil suit against Brett Favre and Nancy New, other individuals, about uh, welfare money that was misspent in, a, in an attempt to claw back the money. And the volleyball stadium is not one of those expenditures that the state is targeting. But the $1.1 million payment to Favre is... And the text messages just released recently revealed that that $1 million payment wasn't really um, about advertising in the beginning. It was really uh, described by Favre as a way to put more money into the volleyball stadium or get more money more quickly for the volleyball project so that they could go ahead and break ground. So while there was this kind of media frenzy around him receiving Brett Favre receiving welfare money for speeches he never gave, you know, this larger story about his influence over welfare officials sort of, um, you know, makes that kind of a sideshow. Let's be clear here. The one detail we haven't mentioned is that Brett Favre not only went to the University of Southern Mississippi, he was interested in building a volleyball stadium there because his daughter plays volleyball at the University of Mississippi or played volleyball, I'm not sure. Um, so these are the sorts of, you know, politically connected, influential deal-making that feels really icky here. And based on these texts, Anna, and the other reporting that you've done, I mean, it beggars belief that Favre, as his lawyer has claimed, didn't know where this money was coming from and didn't ask where the money was coming from. Do you have a sense of why Favre has not been indicted along with others here? So the FBI works really slowly. Um, you know, we saw just last week, John Davis, the former welfare director, was was finally just charged for the first time with federal crimes and pled guilty to them last week. Um, you know, he John Davis is going to be a key witness for uh federal prosecutors in targeting some of these under other individuals who were responsible for directing this money. Um, you know, he definitely is going to be a key witness uh, against the former governor, or at least a key person for them to probe uh, when trying to go higher up the ladder on individuals responsible for this misspending. Um, but they've got their work cut out for them in terms of, you know, sorting through all of this communication and evidence to, to building a case. Do we have a sense for why? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, and I think we've mentioned this already, that Favre has denied um, his involvement in this, that the money that they received, he didn't know that they came from welfare funds. But can you give me a sense for how many people had their hands out and how did Brett Favre know that that was a way that he could potentially get the money he needed for a volleyball stadium above anything else? I think we're still learning how exactly Brett Favre got connected with the welfare officials. So, you know, near the beginning, 
Brett Favre told me back in 2020 when I asked him if he had ever had a conversation with the former governor about this project, he told me no. Now we know that that's obviously not correct, um, but we don't know exactly when those conversations began. So the former governor is is still um, arguing that he didn't have anything to do with setting Brett Favre up with the welfare officials. But that's something that we'll have to you know find out as time goes on. But it is important to to note how Brett Favre was communicating about what Nancy was doing for him. So, you know, this money was committed to the volleyball stadium in 2017. Fast forward to 2018, and Brett Favre was trying to get money for this pharmaceutical uh, venture that he was investing in. And he told his business associate that Nancy New gave me $5 million via grant funds for volleyball. So that kind of shows his mindset about what was this money for? Was this money for an anti-poverty program that they were going to administer at this wellness facility at USM? Or was it for him, Brett Favre, for the volleyball facility? Uh, There was another text where Brett Favre had suggested offering the former governor stock in this pharmaceutical company in exchange for his help. And, um, He even suggested to the business owner offering Nancy New and John Davis stock in the company. And when he did that, he said that he believed that the welfare officials would be using federal grant funds for this project. Uh, so, So that at least gives some indication of where he thought this money was coming from, federal grants. So we will link to your author page, Anna, in our show notes, and people can scroll back one, two, three, four, five, six pages on that author page to see how much you've been digging into this story and how this is not really solely focused on Brett Favre. This is an enormous Mm -hmm. scandal that you and Mississippi Today have uncovered involving, can you you give us a number, in in TANF funds or other funds? It's like close to $100 million. Yeah, that's right. that's, Mm -hmm. That's allegedly misspent. And so it's a story that's kind of close to my heart because of my own reporting. And I think I'd love to get you to talk about this. But one thing that I think people might be confused by, because it makes no sense, is why could you, why would anyone even think that you could spend welfare money on a volleyball stadium? And the explanation is that it's because of the Clinton welfare reform of the 90s that transformed Aid to Families with Dependent Children to TANF, uh, T-A-N-F, you might have seen that acronym, And basically what that did is give states block grants and say, actually, you don't have to give money to poor people. What you can do is have Brett Favre give a speech or you can have a class encouraging people to stay, you know, married. And so it became, Anna, in the state of Mississippi, a state that historically has not given two shits about um, giving money to poor people in any kind of context, has always had the lowest payouts um, in cash welfare, gives basically no one cash welfare. It gave them this huge slush fund, essentially. And you might want to be a little bit, I don't know, if you want to talk about it in the same way I'm talking about it. But it basically gave them this slush fund that people like Brett Favre would have said, like, all right, if you're not giving it to poor people, give it to give it to me. Yeah, there. I mean, you know just as much as, as anyone about um, the ways that this program can be manipulated Um, you know, this, the scandal is what opportunities were missed for families living in poverty in Mississippi. So, 
you know, you talk about the welfare check. Um, it was about $170 a month for a family of three in Mississippi during the time the scandal occurred, which, you know, essentially the state was telling poor families that they didn't deserve that money. They didn't, they didn't qualify for that money. We were denying that's 99. Less money than it was, that's less money than it was in the 70s. And that's not even counting inflation. Like exactly. it's less than like actual dollars than, it, than somebody could get in the 1970s. We didn't increase it for 20 years. Until the scandal uh, was uncovered, we increased it by $90 a month last year. It's still one of the lowest uh, monthly payouts uh, in the nation. You know, the scandal is the the missed opportunities. As you know, most of this money does not go out to direct cash payments to very poor families. It is used on different services, mostly used as a way for the state to promote its its ideology and its idea about people living in poverty and what people living in poverty need to escape poverty. Um, you know, you see a lot of money spent on parenting classes, these like family stabilizing marriage counseling types of fatherhood programs. Um, and it's, it's really a way for the state to sort of push its ideology about families living in poverty with no regard, by the way, for the outcomes. And the, the federal government doesn't require the states to prove how they are spending this money to prove how it is helping people. You don't even have to say how many people you're serving and, and what their uh, results are after they leave the program. Um, I'm, I'm very curious from your perspective, like, you know how lax the rules are. Um, you know what states are capable of, but did you ever think in your research that you would have seen something as sort of egregious as what's occurred in Mississippi? Yeah, I think my imagination maybe wasn't, uh, maybe I should have <laughs> considered. I, I mean, anytime, th this is the allegation about recipients, right, Anna, is that if you give people free money, they're going to, and this is, to be clear, this is, I'm, I'm saying a racist and terrible thing that I don't believe. The idea that <laughs> if you give people money, they'll spend it on alcohol, they'll spend it on drugs, the sort of paternalistic, mm -hmm. pathologizing, fast food, sort of, or mm -hmm. like steak and or lobster, steak or whatever, and lobster, yeah. that, that people can't be trusted sure. right. um, to, uh, you, you know, that poor poor people cannot be trusted. Or that it creates a culture of dependency, which right. is the argument that Republicans have made for generations. Sure. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, what you're reporting shows is, uh, and, and Benny Thompson said it, who we know from the January 6th committee, that congressman, that it's uh, Robin Hood in reverse. You take from the poor and give to the rich. These people need to go to, Brett Favre needs to go to a, a class to learn how to not be an, a, a terrible person. You know, Phil Bryant was the governor while this occurred. And the Department of Human Services, the welfare agency that administers this money, is an agency under the governor's office. Phil Bryant was auditor before he became governor. He wrote a column at one point that said that people who steal taxpayer money or misspend taxpayer money need to go to jail. He said, in God we trust, in all others we audit. <laughs> mm. this, is, this is the guy who, who probably would know the most about their federal regulations and in the ways in which they could use loopholes to spend this money in the way that they wanted. And again- He sat for three hours with you, which I thought was interesting. He did, yes, because when I produced the text messages that showed that he was uh, agreeing to accept stock in the pharmaceutical company that received $2 million in stolen welfare funds, 
I don't think he thought he had a choice but to address these pieces of communication head on. And his response, by the way, to agreeing to accept stock in a company that he was told by text message was receiving funds from the state, his response was that he didn't read his text messages carefully enough to appreciate what they were saying. I don't believe that that will hold up in court. <laughs> you know, it's not my, not my job. That's the jury's job. I have a two-part question about like the process, of your experience of reporting on this. One, uh, these stories are not possible if you don't get those text messages, right? That's right. So, I mean, I, obviously you're not going to tell me how you got them, but when you get these text messages, you know that you've got a gold mine here then all of a sudden, right? Like you're like, oh, okay, this they've been running bullshit on me for the last two years, correct? Yeah, essentially. Okay, okay. Um, so what has been your experience in the response here? Because, I mean, obviously we people have their ideas of like what a a bunch of people in Mississippi might think about welfare funds, right? So what has been your experience um, and what has been the response that you've gotten to these stories and your investigation into these very powerful and prominent Mississippians? So when I first started looking at the TANF program, which was much before I knew anything about a scandal or, or any of this broke, I did know instinctively that we weren't spending the money in ways that, um, were actually, creating positive results for families in need because I couldn't see it. I knew there wasn't any proof that we were doing that. I didn't know that they were misspending the money, but I did, I did know that, you know, we had this philosophy as a state that we don't want to give this money out to in direct cash payments to people. And, you know, that is a public policy question that, you know, we can have that conversation, but um, ultimately, like if the services that we are supporting with the funds are raising people out of poverty, then that's a positive thing. And I wanted to highlight that. But they never would give me enough information. They'd never respond to public records requests in the way that, you know, I was asking for the records to, um, you know, expenditure reports showing how they were spending the money, who we were helping, outcome reports, that kind of thing. And so there's this notion that, um, you know, if you're trying to tackle what's happening in this public assistance program, then you're advocating for more cash welfare assistance to people. But honestly, no matter how you feel about anti-poverty programs in the state of Mississippi, you could be like a very conservative person. I don't like government spending at all. Everyone has gotten together on this story. I mean, there's pretty much, there's no way to, to really have a different opinion about what happened here because everyone is frustrated. Everyone is disturbed by what happened with these welfare funds. No matter how you feel about the program itself, anyone can get around and get together on the fact that this money should not have been used to build a volleyball stadium at USM, to pay for speeches from celebrities, these things that um, you know, pretty much no one is going to publicly support. So where does that leave Brett Favre in all of this? Um, he's a you know a legend in Mississippi. He moved back to Mississippi after his long career in Wisconsin. Um, have do you have a sense of how public opinion toward Favre has maybe changed? I, I've got to say, I mean, a lot of the reaction that I get is like they're not surprised that he would do something like this. He's he's been involved in other kinds of unsavory things in the past. Um, you know, and I'm not even just talking about the, the text message thing. Um, but he was connected to a, a pain cream scheme that was hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, a scandal in Hattiesburg. Um, then there have been other things that, um, 
that he's been um, involved in that people, you know, are not happy about. And um, while he is, you know, one of our, you know, accomplishments as a state, um, personally, I don't think people have a lot of faith in him as a actual role model. I don't have any more questions, but I just want to say I keep nailing these people to the wall. Thank you. Yeah. Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today. Actually, this is Monday. We're recording this segment Monday morning. And she, before she hopped on air with us, I released a story that was about uh, Ted DiBiase Jr. and uh, the former governor of Mississippi. And we'll, like I said, we'll post your uh, author page on our show notes so they can read that and all of your other great work into this story. So, yes, please uh, nail them to the wall, Anna. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. That warms my heart to hear that coming from you. Why, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. That's why I jumped right in, because I knew you were going to try to do it, and I really wanted to do it. It was a whimsy-filled Sunday in the NFL. First, we had a swarm of bees that were attached to the goalpost in Tampa during the Bucks game against the Packers. ESPN reporter Jenna Lane did some excellent breaking news coverage. The hive has not impacted play, she wrote. As the Packers scored in that end zone on their opening drive, it is unclear whether players are even aware of the bees who have mysteriously chosen the goalpost as a new home on game day. Florida is home to more than 300 species of bees, including 29 that are found nowhere else in the world, she added. That's just good journalism right there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, do, should we give her credit? I think she should have just started screaming onto the field, are you aware of the bees? <laughs> <laughs> she was, I, I don't think she was on all. This was not on air. This was in print. She's just doing well, her job. She could still have a megaphone. Yeah. Uh, stadium personnel have been attempting to catch the queen and a source told ESPN that once the queen is captured, the rest are expected to leave Making things more challenging is that the species of bees inhabiting the field, the field goal, cannot be sprayed. I mean, I would have liked to have known which species it was. <laughs> also, curious use of unnamed sourcing there. Yes. Who, yeah. who would mean, not? Yeah. <laughs> who are we protecting there? Protecting Does Malcolm Glazer still? Uh, does he <laughs> still have the book? 
<laughs> the beekeeping community is deep with sources, but they want to stay private. All right. So after that, she we interviewed were, a beekeeper actually, but they had that <laughs> that whole outfit on, so you couldn't tell awesome. who it was. <laughs> All right, then we had the Bills offensive coordinator, Ken Dorsey, losing his shit in the coach's box after Buffalo couldn't get off a spike to stop the clock to attempt a long field goal, losing to Miami 21-19. Dorsey slammed down his headset, a notebook, and his tablet after the NFL told teams last week to stop mistreating the sponsored tablets. Dorsey was apparently known for his temperament when he was a field coach, which Josh Allen pointed out last summer, to which Dorsey responded, I like to think I'm not too much of a psychopath. That uh, clip got a little bit of run on Twitter last night. Maybe it was- Joel, how do you think Gina Toretta and Steve Walsh would have uh, would have reacted? Yeah, I mean uh, Kenny Kelly. I mean, that would I would really want to hear a little bit more from him on this. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. All right, more whimsy. Jimmy G. Jimmy Garoppolo stepped out of the back of the end zone. Man, the old Dan Olafsky. Yeah, 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 making Dan Orlovsky feel good. Finally, there were three safeties on Sunday, three. The Broncos got one to cut their deficit against San Francisco to seven to five. And I instantly, of course, checked pro football reference to see how many seven, five games there have been in NFL history. Only one, 1938. Then the Broncos kicked a field goal, 10-5. Only one of those two, 1988. And then the Broncos scored a touchdown, but missed the two-point conversion. Final score, 11 to 10. The second 11-10 in NFL history. 2008 was the other. Mike Tirico mentioned that on Sunday Night Football immediately. All right, safety number two was in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, with the fourth quarter winding down. The Eagles led the Washington football team 24-2. to I wanted this final score, um, even though it wouldn't have been new. 24-2 has happened three times, 1972, 1980, 2012. But any game ending in a two, ugh, would have been awesome, but the WFT scored a garbage time touchdown, 24 The commanders, Stefan, the commanders. I'm not going to say it. I, I'm the, the WFT to me. Don't, uh, you think, don't, you th- don't you think they have nice uniforms, though? I mean, I, I, those are, I those are those better th- uniforms, yeah. Yeah, yeah those definitely. are really nice. Mm. Yeah, those are good uniforms. Second 24-8 in history. The other one, Joel, your Houston Oilers on the winning end against the Lions in 1975. Um, safety number three was, of course, the best safety the Miami possession before the Bills failed last possession that led to Dorsey's meltdown ended with Thomas Morstead punting the ball off the backside of his punt protector and out of the rear of the end zone. Butt punt, butt punt safety. Former Jets quarterback Mark Sanchez of butt fumble fame tweeted at Morstead, whoa, stay out of my lane, bro. That's pretty good. (laughs) For the record, this was not the first recorded butt punt Thanks to newspapers.com, I discovered one in 1993 by UTEP in a 52-0 loss to Hawaii. In 2014, Youngstown State punter Joey Cejudo did one of those Aussie punts, but rolled out too far forward and butt punted. That same season, Nebraska punter Sam Foltz dropped a snap and punted into a teammate's ass. An Iowa player picked up the ball, returned it for a touchdown, butt punt six, I think that should be called. There was also a butt punt six in 2015 in a game between McKinley and Archbishop Hoban High Schools in Ohio. There must have been more butt punts. You talked about all these safeties, and I was waiting for Iowa to come up. Uh, but, you know, not necessarily in the context I expected, but they, they did make an appearance. They did a, make an appearance. A conversation about safeties. So, Where does that rank in Thomas Morstead's career highlights compared to onside kick in the Super Bowl? Number two, right? <laughs> Two. You have to decide which is one and which is two, though. Joel, what's your butt punt? 
My butt punch. So about a month ago, as part of the One Year 1986 podcast series, Woo-hoo. I hosted an episode called A Boycott in Mississippi. Shout out One Year 1986. It's about how the black residents of a small Mississippi town seized control of their school system from Jim Crow era leadership. In the episode, I covered how community leaders in Indianola, Mississippi, organized a month-long boycott of local white-owned businesses and a walkout of the public schools. Their efforts helped to change the balance of power there, clearing the way for the hiring of Indianola's first black superintendent. That story is about the roots of Mississippi's entrenched resistance to black American progress, how people can make a difference in their communities, and how the civil rights battles of the 1960s are never truly over, among many other things. At the heart of the matter here is the belief that Mississippi's white leaders don't have to be responsive to their black constituents in the blackest state in the country. That government, from the state level to the local, has no real obligation, financial or otherwise, to some of its most vulnerable and most oppressed citizens. There's one anecdote from Indianola that didn't make the final cut of the episode, but I think that illustrates that point very clearly. And it's an anecdote that became more salient recently in the wake of our guest Anna Wolf's reporting about the state's misuse of welfare funds and how Brett Favre is implicated in the unfolding scandal. See, in Indianola, almost all of the black students go to public school and almost all of the white ones go to a private one called Indianola Academy. It's sometimes called a segregation academy, like many of the schools founded across the Deep South in the years after Brown v. Board. Indianola Academy represented, in a way, white Southerners' large-scale abandonment of public schooling. But yet, they still managed to hang on to a piece of the local school district. You're about to hear a clip that didn't end up in the final episode. It's from an interview I did with David Jackson, who was elected to the Indianola School Board in 1986. Somebody was telling me that Indianola Academy plays at the Indianola Junior High football field and that Indianola Junior High doesn't even play there. Is that is that right? Is that true? That's true. That's true. That's true. So David Jackson was the second black member of the five-person Indianola school board. His election was supported by black residents who'd grown weary of their children being deprived of the money and resources their schools deserved. One of their persistent allegations was that the school board improperly and consistently took money meant for public schools and funneled it to Indianola Academy. I'm, I'm not being sinister about it or nothing. Uh, it's just that it was what it was. Because uh, 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 um, I, I, I just remember people telling me how black principals was asked to sign off on invoices for materials that never showed up in black schools computers, and everything else. Indianola Junior High's football field was a more audacious power grab. The story goes this way. A white landowner had leased the field to the public school district until Indianola Academy needed a football field of its own. Their team, the Colonels, uh, took over the junior high field, and the Indianola Junior High team had to take a bus about a mile away to use the high school stadium. That's still the arrangement to this day. We, the junior high school team, could not play and has never played on the football field where Indianola Junior High is. 
even until today. That's Reverend Otha Campbell, a native and pastor of two local Baptist churches. He graduated from Indianola schools and still gives back today as a tennis coach. I think of him as Indianola's greatest ambassador. It has baffled me until this day. Indianola Academy has always played football on the Indianola uh, Junior High School football field. This is even today. Today, local leaders say the land is owned by the local American Legion. In a profile of the town's separate school systems, Sarah Carr of the Atlantic wrote, instead of sharing the field, the academy leaders put their logo, IA, on the buildings like territorial markings. There's also a six-foot barbed wire fence around the field's perimeter, a stark reminder that outsiders should stay away. The kids who go to Indianola's public schools, more than 95% of them black, have simply had to figure out other ways to make it work. The public high school in Indianola is called Gentry High School. And while it hasn't been much of a power historically, I'm happy to report that they're 4-1 this season and seem headed to their first winning season in eight years. So shout out to the Rams. But this all brings me back to Brett Favre and the Mississippi state government. There's still a lot more to report about this story. And at this point, there's no telling if Favre will find himself in actual legal peril. Favre is a useful but convenient villain here. He's not the first person accused of stealing from Mississippi's most vulnerable citizens, and he certainly won't be the last. They're all working from the same playbook, and they've always counted on people not caring who wins or loses. Whether it's 1968 or 1986 or 2022, in Jackson or in Indianola, the game has remained the same. That was great, Joel. And your episode and what you just said there is kind of the embodiment of what we've tried to do on one year, which is tell stories from the past that kind of, you can look at them backwards in time and forwards in time. And it's a story that's relevant across American history. And so it's, you know, hearing about what's happening with that football field, it's a microcosm of everything that's going on in, in Mississippi. And we didn't even talk about with Anna, and you didn't mention um, in the in the afterball the situation with the water in Jackson that's mm-hmm. been happening mm-hmm. for the last couple of months. I mean, it is a that state is a catastrophe for the people who need the government the most to deserve representation. And yeah, stories like this one, like the ones that Anna's been doing, are an important reminder that like. We need to be paying attention to this stuff. I am just trying to imagine what it feels like to be a student at that junior high school, that middle school, to look out at that field and know I can't play on it and that these white kids are coming over to play their games on it and what the lasting impact of that is. No, I mean, I think, um, you know, if in a vacuum, if you were to just say, hey, did you know that um, this state is taking money meant for this. This explicitly used for to help you know people that are in you know the most desperate of circumstances that you could think of in this country, and they're diverting it to whatever you know this other white school or Brett Favre or whatever. Um, in a vacuum, you just hear it and you're just like, 
no, surely there are people looking out for that. That that's not the kind of thing that can happen. But um, it really is that audacious. I don't think that I would have believed that until I had grown up. Like I would have thought that there are people that prevent that sort of stuff from happening. That surely the people that need help get it, and it's not, you know, uh, help for them is not coming uh, at the expense of you know, or, or that that money going toward a volleyball stadium that's not coming at the expense of all these people that need welfare funds right but no actually that's the sort of thing that goes on and so it's just a feeling of a discovery um every time you report on this sort of stuff down there uh that like oh wow um not as much as change as you would like to think you know well your episode was great we'll link to it obviously in our show notes everybody should check it out um and that is our show for today i think is is what i say at these mm-hmm. moments. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to sleep.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at sleep.com and please subscribe to our show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Oh, remember Manu Ginobili too because he's just as great. Remember. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.